Well, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning, and a little bit different in the next couple of months. Uh, like I mentioned last week, we're taking a break from our series in Genesis. We've been in Genesis for about a year now, and it's time for us to take a little break. We're just over halfway through. I promise we'll get back to Genesis. Uh, but today, we're going to begin a series that we'll, we'll uh, look at over the next couple of months. And this, I'm going to call this series, What We Believe. What We Believe. And we're going to look at the basics of what we believe as Christians. As a church, by definition, we are a community of faith. Okay? We're united by our belief. Okay, that's what holds us together. Now, sometimes the word faith is thrown around kind of lightly in our culture, right? People will sort of lump together all the world religions, right? They'll say sort of, you know, the, the Buddhists and the Muslims and the Christians and the pagans and the New Age, they're all people of faith. Let me put that in air quotes, right? Because at the end of the day, they all believe something. But we're not united as a church because we all believe something, we're not united as a church because we believe just anything. What unites us is a very specific faith. Okay. We're united by our belief in a very specific thing, and that's in Jesus. Right? We're united in the Christian faith. We believe what Christians believe. And so here's going to be our question, really our focusing question over the next few months, which is, what do Christians believe? What do Christians believe? What are the basic core beliefs of the Christian faith? Now, I think if I sort of assigned you to take, take your, your bulletin and find some blank spaces and to write like the top 10 things, the most important elements of the Christian faith, and if I had everyone in the room do that this morning, we'd probably get relatively similar lists, okay? Um, we'd maybe start by saying, well, I believe in God. And I believe in his son, Jesus, right? And I believe in the Holy Spirit. We might say, and I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and that he died a death for sinners on the cross and that he rose again on the third day, right? And that he's reigning in heaven and that he's coming again, right? And I believe in the final judgment, right? And I believe in the resurrection of the dead and I believe in the forgiveness of sins, right? We, we agree to these things, right? Um, the list could go on. And the reason for this, this sermon series is that we as a church, as far as I'm able, I've been able to tell, have never actually put down in writing any kind of summary of what we believe constitutes the core of the Christian faith. Okay? We do not have a statement of faith. We've never put pen to paper and say, this is what we believe. Now, we have a, a constitution, and we have a church covenant, and these are good documents. They're solid, and they tell us how we should operate as a church, right? Who's supposed to handle the finances, how leadership is elected, how membership works, how we should deal with church discipline. This kind of stuff is handled there, and those are great, right? But the only thing our constitution says about what we believe is that we believe what the Bible teaches. Now, amen. I'm so glad our church constitution says we believe what the Bible teaches because 
we believe what the Bible teaches, right? This is the foundation. That's actually what we're going to look at this morning, a doctrine of Scripture, what we believe about the Bible. But what do we believe the Bible teaches? All kinds of people say that they believe the Bible, and all kinds of people say they believe the Bible and believe all kinds of strange things, right? All kinds of people say they believe the Bible and deny the humanity or the divinity of Christ. All kinds of people say they believe the Bible but deny the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All kinds of people say they believe the Bible but wouldn't believe what we would believe about what the Bible teaches. And so as a church... I think it would be wise for us to be clear, not just that we believe the Bible, but to be clear that we agree on what the Bible teaches. Okay, And so this is a need that I've had a sense of since I've come to the church, and this is a need that the deacons and I have talked over and prayed over in the last year or so. And so we've come to the conviction uh, as leaders that as a church we need a confession of faith that we need a summary statement of what we believe that actually puts pen to paper of the core beliefs that hold us together as a church. And so what I'd like to do in the next few months and what I'm doing with the blessing of the deacons is to take our Sunday morning sermons and on each Sunday to tackle one section of of the confession of faith that, that we'd like to adopt as a church and to look at it and to study it. And so the Sunday sermons are going to be a little bit different. And it's worth noting this and noting this difference. Um, My usual habit in terms of preaching on Sunday mornings is called expositional preaching. And maybe you haven't heard this term before, but that's what we do every Sunday morning. And expositional preaching is preaching which makes the main point of a text of Scripture the main point of the sermon. So that's what we do on Sunday mornings, like we've been doing through Genesis, and we take a a chunk of scripture, a chapter, or a part of a chapter, and we say, what does this teach, right? And the main point of the text becomes the main point of the sermon. And I think this is the healthiest way um, of of preaching in terms of a regular diet of the church. So we're going to get back there, right? But for the next couple of months, we're going to do topical, a topical study, okay? This is sort of unusual for me, but I think, it's, I think it's right and helpful to do this on occasion. And so basically what we're going to do is each week we're going to take some topic, like the doctrine of Scripture, right? Or the doctrine of Christ, or the doctrine of the church, and say, what does the whole Bible teach on this one idea, right? So like this morning, we're going to ask, what does the whole Bible teach about itself, right? What does the Bible say about the Bible? What do we believe about Scripture? Um, in terms of the, the statement of faith itself, uh, the deacons and I didn't come up with this from scratch. Okay, so we're not starting from zero on this. Um, we've taken and adopted and sort of tweaked slightly what's called the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Um, And this is a historic, well-established Baptist statement of faith. Uh, And it was actually written by the same man who wrote our church covenant. 
So John Newton Brown um, was a pretty well-known Baptist writer and theologian right around the time this church was formed, okay? And his, um, uh, his church covenant, membership covenant, and his statement of faith have been adopted by tons of Baptist churches across uh, the country since then. And I like the New Hampshire Confession because I think it's solid without being pedantic, okay? It's solid on those core essential truths without being overly specific on things which we really should be able to disagree on, okay? Um, so we've started with that, and then we've made some tweaks. We've made some edits as we've, we've gone along, and I'll note those as we, as we come to them. Um, knowing some of you, I imagine you'll probably be Googling the New Hampshire Confession as soon as you get home, or you are right now in your pew. So feel free to do that. Uh, it's, it's out there. You just have to search the New Hampshire Confession. But note, We've made some edits, and some significant edits on a couple of sections, and so just keep that in mind. Uh, the first section is inside your bulletin, so that's what we're going to be looking at this week. It says, of the scriptures, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and I want to pray before we jump in. So let's take a moment now to, to go to the Lord together. Father, we're going to consider this morning your word. And so it's right as we consider this, this great topic of your word that we would ask your blessing. And so we ask that you would help us now open our minds and our hearts not only to understand the nature of this book, which we hold tremblingly in our hands, um, but also to believe with whole hearts that this is the very word of God. And we know we cannot do that apart from your grace. We know that this assurance can only come finally by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that you would work now. Assure our hearts of the truth of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to answer three questions this morning. Three questions this morning about the Bible, about what we believe about the Bible. Three questions. First, who wrote it? Second, can we trust it? Third, what does the Bible do? Okay? Who wrote it? Can we trust it? What does the Bible do? So first, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Take a look at the confession. It says, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men who were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, we believe that Scripture has God for its author. All right, so who wrote the Bible? Men or God? Yes. Right. Who wrote the Bible, men or God? Yes. Right. Human beings as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? If you flip to first, uh, Second Peter, in the passage we looked at earlier, describes how this actually works. You don't have to go there. You can if you want to. Second Peter 1, verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but listen to this, men spoke from God. Right? Who wrote the Bible? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? This is how the Bible got written. Men carried along by God, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, as soon as you start reading scripture in any depth, you realize that there's different authors, right? You realize that Paul wrote some books and Moses wrote some books and David wrote some books and, and, uh, and you begin to notice different styles, right? You notice that, oh, David wrote poetry and Isaiah's got this sort of prophetic, poetic thing going on and um, you go and Moses is writing quite a lot of history and law and you say, oh, well, Peter and Paul, they're writing letters to churches, right? And the writer of Hebrews seems to be writing a sermon, And so it's, it's interesting to note, right, that these authors are writing in their own style. They're writing even out of their own personality, right? You can hear the fire of Paul, right, as he's angry at these people who are leading, leading the churches astray. You can hear the, the joy of David, right, as he's writing these beautiful psalms of joy. So the authors of Scripture, they, they weren't just mechanically writing down what God had said. In some cases, we've got that, right? In some cases, we've got direct dictation from God, like the Ten Commandments on the mountain, or some of the prophets, it seems like they're just, they're literally writing down what God is telling them, right? But other times, it's, it's kind of more of an organic inspiration, right? The New Testament letters. The apostles are writing these things out of their heart and out of their understanding to a given situation, but they're doing it by the Holy Spirit, right? They're doing it as they're inspired by God. And so who wrote Romans, Paul or God? Yes, <laughs> yes. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 3, right? And this will be familiar to you. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And this is where the confession gets the language of, of divinely inspired, right? You see that um, uh, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men who were divinely inspired, okay? That's that word breathed out. Um, the, the word in the original language isn't an inhale, it's an exhale. <sighs> right? <sighs> it's the breath of life, right? Our breath is the life of a person. When we stop breathing, when we take our last breath, then we're dead, right? When someone's drowning, what do we do? We try and get breath back in them through CPR, right? Um, in, saying, in, in saying that scripture is inspired, that it's actually exhaled from the mouth of God, um, I think it's almost certain that Paul has in mind Genesis chapter 2, and what breathing does God do in Genesis chapter 2? When he forms Adam out of the dust, is he alive yet? No. He breathes his breath into him, right? And he comes to life. And so what Paul is saying is God has actually breathed his breath of life, the spirit of life, into this book in a similar way to the way that God has actually breathed life into our bodies, 
He's saying it's inspired by God. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. That as Paul was putting pen to paper, right, as Luke is recording the events of the gospel, as Isaiah is recording his prophecy, as Moses is recording the events of the Exodus, that the words they're writing are actually alive, not by their power, but by the very breath of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? That this book was actually written by men filled with the Spirit of God? When you open the pages of Scripture, are you aware that you are touching a holy thing? When you read your Bible at home in your personal study, or when you read your Bible during family prayer, do you have a sense that when you open this book, actually the very life and presence of God is blowing through your living room? When we read scripture on Sundays, when we sing scripture, when we pray scripture, when we teach scripture, do we come with a holy expectation that actually as we read the words of this book, we are reading the very words of God? I was at a pastor's lunch a couple of months ago, and one of the pastors asked the rest of us, he said, have you ever heard the audible voice of God? And he was curious, because he never had. He's like, I wonder, have you? And we sort of looked around the room, and, and one guy piped up. He said, actually, I hear, I hear God speak audibly all the time, all the time. Every time I hear the Bible read aloud. If we want to hear from God, we don't have to spend our whole lives straining to hear some voice from heaven. All we have to do is open this book. He's spoken clearly and with more volume than we could ever work through thoroughly in our whole lifetimes. We have no lack of communication from God. What a privilege. What a privilege that as one pastor has put it, God wrote a book. That we can just open the pages of this book and hear God speak. And that's why we keep coming back to it again and again, right? People who don't believe the Bible is the word of God get bored of it awfully quickly. But the reason we keep coming back to this book is that we need God. We need to hear from God. We come back again and again because here we find the words of eternal life. Here we find deep fountains of joy, deep rivers of life flowing from the mighty ocean of God who is life. Here we read stories that God uses to break us and remake us. Here we find weeping prophets through whom God pleads with us. Here we find poets through whom God sings to us with joyful songs of salvation. We love this book because we find God in this book. Open this book, and he will speak to you if you have ears to hear. Who wrote the Bible? Yes, God and men. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men who were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Scripture has God for its author. Do you believe this? Amen. All right.
First question, who wrote the Bible? Second question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Simple answer, yes. <laughs> Same answer as the first question, yes. What does the confession say? We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men who were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. And it goes on. We believe that Scripture has God for its author, salvation for its end, and, note this, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Or in other words, yes, we can trust the Bible. And I want, I want to note the flow of both of those sentences. Both of those first two sentences in this section begin by speaking about the author and end by speaking about the authority. Right? We believe that the Holy Bible was written by spirit-inspired men, so therefore it's a perfect treasure. It can't be broken. We believe that Scripture has God for its author, salvation for its end, and if God is its author... What's its content? Truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Notice the, the logical flow here. If this book is God-breathed, if this book is God's word, then it must be trustworthy. It must be true because God is trustworthy and God. God is true. Numbers 23, 19 says this, and these are words to emblazon on your heart. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. If we believe that this book is the inspired word of God, then we must also believe that it is true without any error, that it is perfect without any blemish. That the doctrine of the trustworthiness and the inerrancy of Scripture is actually just a natural and organic consequence of believing that God breathed out this book. If we believe that God wrote this book, then it must be trustworthy because God wrote it. Now that's what we believe about this book as Christians. We live in a culture and we live in a generation which has rejected any claim that this book is the word of God. And people have all kinds of reasons for asking whether what is written in this book is really true and they'll come at it from all kinds of angles. People will ask questions about disputed authorship. People will ask questions about the manuscript tradition. People will ask questions about different translations and whether they can be trusted. All these sorts of technical questions about the trustworthiness of scripture. And there are technical and helpful and encouraging answers to these technical questions. Um, 
We don't have time to get into them this morning. If you're curious, if you have questions, or if people ask you questions uh, about these, these things, um, I'd love to help you find answers to these questions. There, there, there are answers if you're looking for them. We don't have time to work through all those objections this morning. What I do want us to see this morning is that all objections to God's word ultimately are rooted in a foundational rejection of God and his word that infects us all as a human race, okay? It shouldn't surprise us that people look for reasons to reject God's word. Rejecting God's word isn't original, it isn't avant-garde. Some people make it out to be that way. I'm such a trailblazer. I'm rejecting the Bible my parents taught me. Right? Yeah, real creative. We've been, we've been rejecting God's word for a long time. Right? That's the very first temptation all the way back in the garden. It has to do with the trustworthiness of the word of God. Genesis 3, you can turn there with me if you want. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. The serpent comes to Eve, right? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And what's the snake say to the woman? Does Satan say, you will not surely die. You won't die. Or in other words, God's lying. He can't be trusted. His word can't be trusted. And his word won't lead you to life. What does the serpent say? He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, God's holding out on you. God's lying to you, and he's keeping what's really good from you. So don't listen to his word. Do it yourself. This lie, this accusation that God cannot be trusted, that his word cannot be believed, is actually the oldest trick in the book. It's a deep part of who we are as sinners. And we're very prone to believe it. We're prone to believe it because we're sons of Adam and Eve, daughters of Adam and Eve. And of course, because when the apple looks good, it's very convenient to deny the word of God. If God has spoken into the world clearly about his law, about perfect righteousness, about our obligation to bow the knee before Lord Jesus, then our whole lives are going to have to change. We're going to have obligations. God's word is awfully in, inconvenient if we're determined to live our lives our way. So I'd want to encourage you at least not to be intimidated by a culture, even a whole generation, which has set its face against God's word. They have reasons for doing so. They have surface reasons. They have deeper reasons. They have reasons for doing so. 
And my prayer for us this morning is that we would not be among those who set our faces against the word of God. As Christians, we are not children of the serpent anymore. We're sons and daughters of God. Our call is not any longer to live as those who question the word of God, but as those who live by faith in the word of God. It's a wonderful irony and reversal that the curse of sin and death entered the world by doubting, by questioning, by disbelieving the word of God. But the gospel, the promise of Jesus that breaks the curse and gives us eternal life in his death and resurrection comes into the world by faith in the word of God. Right? It's faith in the word of God which actually reverses the curse and reconciles us to God. All who hear the word of Christ and believe it will be saved. Right? To hear and to believe the word of God is life. To reject it and to reject the word of God who is life is to choose death. So let's run to hear and believe the word of God and live. Right? And when you do, when you open this book with eyes of faith, when you open yourself to the light of life in the face of Jesus Christ, you may just find that God shows up. And this, I think, is actually the most powerful evidence in terms of our own walk with the Lord for the inspired nature of this book. Because I think you could probably, I could probably say for all of you, this is true in your experience, that when you open the pages of Scripture, you find God himself is speaking, that your heart is changed, that you're... And sometimes, and sometimes, sometimes you open up Scripture and it, there's not much of a sense of what's going on, but sometimes you open the word and it's like the first word you read just cuts you to the heart. We're in the midst of some dark season. You open the word and all of a sudden it's just light. Because the book is alive. Because God speaks through it. And that, I believe, is actually the deepest, most important assurance that we can have as Christians that this book can really be trusted. We trust this book because we trust the God who wrote it. We trust this book because we know the God who wrote it and because he meets us there when we come to him. We believe that this book, the Holy Scriptures, are a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that they have truth without any mixture of error for their matter. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Who wrote the Bible? God, through men. Can it be trusted? Yes. Thirdly, what does the Bible do? What does the Bible do? And we're actually going to see four answers to this question, four things the Bible does. It reveals, it saves, it tries, and it unites. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to try and cover the rest of this briefly. Reveals, saves, tries, unites. It reveals. Again, you can look to the confession here. We believe that Scripture reveals, this is the third point, 
reveals the principles by which God will judge us. And this is one of the most basic things that we find when we open this book, is the law of God. We find that God has a perfect and a righteous standard, and we find that we will be judged on the basis of his perfect and righteous standard. Right? Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this comes judgment. We will all stand one day before a perfect and holy judge who is God, and his standard of righteousness will not be based on public opinion or the cultural norms of America in 2023 or the laws of any human nation. His standard of righteousness will be the law of God. It will be his own perfect character. Jesus sums up the law in Matthew 22, verse 37. You'll be familiar with these words. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there it is. God's perfect righteous standard for you. By which you will stand or fall on the last day. Let's ask ourselves, have we loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? with everything we are, with every moment, every action, every word that has ever come out of our mouths, have we loved the Lord our God with everything that we are? Have we ever loved our neighbors as ourselves? Actually, ever perfectly, have we? Our every thought, our every action, our every word has every thought or action or word been conceived in self-sacrificial love towards our neighbor? No. No. The confession tells us that the scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and these principles by which God will judge us, this law actually does another work of revealing in our own hearts. The law is revealed so that our hearts will be revealed. This is Romans 3, verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Part of what the word does as we begin to open it is it actually convicts us that we are rebels against God, that we are sinners, that we fall far short of his glory, and that we're desperately in need of a savior. And so fortunately, the word of God doesn't stop at revealing. The word also saves The word also saves. The confession speaks about this in the second point. It says, we believe that Scripture has God for its author and salvation for its end. By end here, we we don't mean the finish line. End means purpose, like means to an end. And so this sentence claims that the end, the purpose, the intent of the Bible is salvation. Salvation. Even actually the law, when it reveals our hearts, is meant to teach us our need for a Savior. It's God actually pulling us onward to look for Jesus. And the headline of Scripture, actually the ruling narrative of the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that there is a Savior. We are sinners, and there is a Savior, and he is Jesus. 
right? The whole Bible, Old Testament to New, the whole book is about Jesus from front to back. And this is actually what Jesus himself teaches about the Bible. Maybe most clearly on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? They didn't get it. They couldn't see it. But he opens up the Bible. Can you imagine being in that Bible study? Right? And Jesus says, look at how the whole Bible has been about me all along. The whole Bible is about Jesus, whose name means God saves. He's the Savior. And that's the message of the Bible. Jesus saves. God saves. God has inspired it. He has spoken it. And he has sent it to us for this purpose, our salvation in Jesus. It's a saving word. Jesus in John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is God's method of saving. He's spoken the word. And if we believe it, we are saved. It has salvation as its end. This book reveals. This book saves. Thirdly, this book tries it tries, not attempts, but tests. Tests. The confession states this in the final, final phrase, that it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Every one of us has court trials in our minds almost every, well, no, every day. Every day we've got a little judge and a little jury, and we pass down verdicts on all kinds of things. Our society prides itself on saying it's non-judgmental, but it's not. Everyone makes judgments all the time about whether the mango is ripe, about whether the car is being sold at the right price, about everything. We make judgments okay, about what's real, about what's true, about what's good, about what's beautiful. Okay, we're constantly making these sorts of judgments. And we can put any number of things on that little judge's throne in the courtroom of our minds and hearts. We can let the culture dictate to us what's right. We can let what we read in books dictate to us what's right. We can let what we read in the newspaper or on Facebook dictate to us what's right. We fill in the blank, right? The confession says the supreme standard, the ultimate judge, by which all human conduct, that's actions, that's things we do, Creeds, that's things we believe, and opinions, that's things we think should be tried. That the word of God is the ultimate standard. This is the mindset of the Bereans in Acts 17. right? When Paul and Silas came and preached the gospel at Berea, what did they do? They say, sounds good to us? Or did they say, nah? No, what they do? Acts 17, 11, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They say, sounds good, but let's check. Let's see what God says about this. They searched the Bibles to see if they, those, the things were so. 
And that should always be our question. Actually, in everything, everything we hear, every message we get through a movie, everything we read in a book, right? Everything, everywhere, we should filter through the Word of God and ask, what does the Word of God say? What has God said about this? The Word of God is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried because God is the supreme judge. Okay. The Word reveals, the Word saves, the Word tries, and finally, the Word unites. The Word unites. The Confession says this. I'll just read that last point again. That We believe that Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. The true center of Christian union. Every society, every family, every church has to have something that holds it together. Families are united by blood. Nations are united by common interest. Some churches are united as a social club over common personality. Right? or common hobbies, or the, you know, the quilting society. A true church is united not by any of those things. What unites a true church? I'm going to read now from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, from beginning in verse 4, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He says there's one body, there's one church, because there's one Jesus, right, who has one body. There's one spirit. If you're a Christian, it's the same Holy Spirit in all of you, right? This is what unites us, one body, one spirit, and he says the one hope, the one hope that belongs to your call. And then he explains what that hope is. One Lord, Jesus, one faith in Jesus, one baptism into Jesus, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God makes us one. He unites us as a church in our hope in Jesus. So what is the content of that hope, right? People make Jesus out to be all kinds of things that he's not. So how do we know what actually unites us? as a church, in terms of telling us what is our hope in Jesus? Where can we meet this one Lord? Where can we learn this one faith? Where can we understand this one baptism? Where can we hear from this one God? Where else can we go? The Word of God. The Word of God. As soon as churches or denominations begin to try and unite themselves around any principle other than the Word of God, they fissure, they fracture, they fall apart. Right? This book is what can hold us together. This book. It is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. Amen? Amen. This book is a gift. Who wrote it? God through men. Can we trust it? Yes. Why? Because God wrote it, and we can trust him. What does it do in our hearts? Reveals, saves, tries, and it unites. 
this is a powerful sword in the hand of God to bring his kingdom into, into the world. Amen? So let's love it. Let's believe it. Let's hold on to it as a church. We believe that the Holy Bible is written by men who are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. We believe that Scripture has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. We believe that Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. I believe this to be true. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're astounded by the gift of your word. We ask that you would allow us not to treat this lightly, not to allow it to gather dust on on the shelves either of our homes or of our hearts, that we would be constantly meditating on your word, that we would be coming back again and again to hear the words of life, and that like, like a stream you would refresh us with the cool, clear water of your word, that you would bring us to life by your word day by day. And we ask, Lord, that you would so use this as a weapon of your kingdom in our hands, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives, in our homes, and in this church by the power of your mighty word through which you made all things and through which you are remaking all things. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Praise God from whom.